0: Quick disclaimer, some slightly stronger than usual violence this week. It's a samurai story, so a lot of sword fights, some beheadings, nothing graphic, but it's there. Please check out the post on MythPodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a samurai legend about two friends who sparked rebellion. And we'll see that if you have a child born with long, flowing hair and a full mouth of teeth after 18 months of labor, you might have an epic hero on your hands. The creatures this week are the reason for lightning storms. Because the sky itself finds them so annoying and just wants to get rid of them. So they will stop surprising people in the bath. This is Myths and Legends, episode 324, Violent Ends. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, we're telling the story of Benke and Yoshitsune, two men who lived in a tumultuous time in Japanese history, the 12th century, when the land was transitioning from empire to military dictatorship. We'll get into the history as we go, but we'll jump right in with a not-so-little infant listening to his caretakers, determine whether he will live or die. It was just fate. Benke wasn't old, but he was old enough to understand what his aunt and the man were talking about. They were talking about him, about what they would do with him. People had begun to worry when, at 10 months, Benke's mother showed no signs of labor. The baby was evidently fine. It still kicked, turned, and wiggled in the womb. The mother swelled further. Those who loved her worried, but she comforted them with her stoic resolve. There was nothing they could do, so there was no point in worrying. It was just fate. She was able to hold her baby before she died. She closed her eyes with a smile on her face, little Benke cooing in her arms. She had been pregnant for 18 months. Benke would never have a relationship with his father, not truly. Some would say he never had a father, that the boy who would be called Oniwaki, the Oni child, the demon child, that he... Born with a full head of hair and teeth Was the son of a cruel god Benke remembered though He remembered the man who wanted to leave him on a hillside To die The man that said Benke wasn't his No child of his would look like that The man couldn't even bear to look at him The child was an obvious curse It was the responsible, noble thing to do Benke would try to remember that day until he gave up all hope on trying to recall where he came from. The man who watched his aunt carry him off with a cold sneer, was he a priest? A noble? Did he ever truly exist? It was just fate, the aunt repeated as she carried him. It was just fate. Yoshitsune hid in a basket. His mother told him it was a game. A fun game they were playing. Be as quiet as you can until the people outside leave. Then, if it was a game, why was she shaking? They killed our father, you know, and our other brothers. Yoshitsune's brother told him later on that day. After the men with swords left, Yoshitsune asked, who? killed their father and brothers. He had never thought about fathers before. To him, it wasn't strange that they lived with their mother, slipping from place to place in the night and hid in baskets when certain people came around. They killed him and one day, we are gonna kill them, Yoritomo said. He was seven, but he spoke with certainty like defeating the Taita clan with their countless retainers was an inevitability, like it was fate. When they finally settled in a verdant mountain temple, just outside of Kyoto, having been granted exile by the Taita clan, the young brothers trained together. If they were going to avenge their father, and their house, the Minamoto clan, they needed to be the best. But Yoshitsune, the younger brother, was not strong. As he grew... As the months turned to years, it became clear that he was going to be smaller than his brother. Yoshitsune's mother had long since given up trying to raiding Yorimoto, the older brother. He lived with an all-consuming goal, kill his father's murderers and restore the Minamoto clan back to its former glory with him as its leader. It was his birthright, it was fate. In fact, she could see his singular purpose of taking back what had been theirs. The Minamoto clan was broken, scattered to the edges of the empire, fighting with itself. The boy would be an adult soon. The mother knew she couldn't hold him back much longer. In fact, she knew that they were on borrowed time as it was. They only existed, only continued living, because of the kindness of their enemies, the kindness of the Taita clan, who had stabbed her husband in the bath. Once he became powerful enough, Yorimoto would draw the attention of his father's enemies. Their attention, and their knives. Some super, super quick backstory here. The Minimoto and the Taita clans were seemingly fated to fight. Real historical clans. They came from the children of the imperial family that, based on how succession worked, would never see the throne. Back in the 9th century, the imperial family had grown so big that one of the emperors decided to break it apart designating some of them Minamoto and some of them Taira. If this sounds like a great way to have a violent crisis on your hands, the moment there's some uncertainty regarding the heir of the emperor, well, that's exactly what happened. And there wasn't just fighting among the clans, but within. Yoshitsune and Norimoto's father, when he didn't agree with their grandfather's support of a certain claimant, simply had the grandfather killed and took over the Minamoto clan. That's the world these boys were born into. Anyway, the Tida clan had sent a messenger. Yorimoto was being banished to a faraway province. His stepmother worried that it was just a ploy to draw the boy out and kill him. But Yorimoto, now 16, comforted her. He would go. He had no choice. He would go, but he wouldn't die. He would do what he must and he would reclaim what was lost he would make it so the Minamoto clan was masters of their own fate once again. It was just too bad that it started out with a loss. Yoshitsune and he fought playfully for years after Yorimoto had trained his younger brother. They always came to a draw, and they always said the one to win would be the one to carry their father's gilded sword. Well, one warm summer morning, Yorimoto yielded with his younger brothers, Yoshitsune's, spoken the wooden tonto, to his throat. Yoshitsune's heart beat in his ears. The only thing that could remove his smile was his brother shoving the sword into his hands. He shook his head. No, he couldn't carry the sword. That was their father's. Yorimoto was the eldest son. You won it, Yorimoto said. Unable to stop the tears, he wouldn't make eye contact. Take it. Yoshitsune shook his head. No. He wouldn't, Yorimoto breathed. Please, it would dishonor him even further. If Yoshitsune tried to give it to him out of charity, he would win it back from Yoshitsune. Yoshitsune said okay and nodded. His fingers trembled as he took the sword in his hands. It was beautiful. It had been the sword that hung at the side of the father he never remembered. We'll avenge him. We'll get it all back, Yoshitsune said with a nod. Together. A few hours later, Yorimoto went into exile. Years passed. Yoshitsune trained with the monks of the temple in the mornings, worked in the evenings, and in the afternoon, would take long walks down closer to Kyoto, playing his flute. He would find a cool stone to sit on and play. It was nice to see the crowds and feel the pulse of the street in the heat of the day after the solitude of the wilderness. He wasn't out there ten minutes when a shadow fell over him. He looked up. The man's shaggy hair blocked the sun, and he towered over Yoshitsune. He must have been six foot six, nearly 200 centimeters. A giant. Hi, Yoshitsune trailed off. Hi, the man said. My name is Benke. You have a nice sword there. You're going to give it to me. We'll see why Benkei is hassling Yoshitsune, but that will be right after this. Benkei was the demon child, Oniwaki, in appearance only. He was strong, and no matter how much his aunt had tried to keep his hair under control, it grew almost as fast as he did. With his muscled frame and height, he looked every bit the Oni from the old stories. When he was a kid, he wasn't just strong though, he was smart, too smart. His aunt, who took him to her home in Kyoto, finally admitted to herself and his uncle that they couldn't control the boy, if Benkei could have ever been called that. Thankfully, with his intelligence, all wasn't lost. They took the long journey up into the mountains until they found the temple, bulwark of civilization there in the wilds. Like its master, Quanke, and his dozen or so acolytes. the temple was controlled, orderly, and serene. The aunt and uncle looked at Benke and then to each other. The boy was still awestruck. For a small donation and the promise that Benke would pull his weight and be as good a worker as he was a student, the aunt and uncle left contented, assured that they were doing right by both Benkei and his late mother. And they were. The temples might not have been the only schools, but they were the only schools a boy like Benkei could hope to attend. A boy without a name, without a father. And Benkei was a phenomenal student. He absorbed everything the legendary warrior monk, Kuanke had to give him, and then challenged the monk when he reached the edges of the man's knowledge and ability, and, well, he just challenged. Benkei grew bored, bored with the lessons he already knew, bored with the techniques he had already perfected, bored with the same conversations, with the same accolades, day after day. So, he made his own fun, he played pranks, he encouraged others to cut class and join him for ball games in the forest. He became the Oniwaki, the demon youth, once again. And at 17 he tore the temple down Kwanke the teacher was nearly as stubborn as Benke nearly he forbade Benke from leaving that only made Benke want to do it more so Benke did do it more so much so that Kwanke at his wits end finally posted guards at Benke's room the 17 year old tried to leave his room one night and found the men at his door rough men that had been hired from the village at the foot of the mountain. Travelers who weren't quite samurai and weren't quite honorable. Benkei was to remain cloistered in his room until Kwankei could figure out what to do with him. And if he didn't go back in there this instant, they would punish him. Benkei solved the problem of, what should the monastery do with Benkei? When Benkei stole out of his room, took a log that was actually the better part of a tree, and brought down the majority of the monastery. Miraculously, no one was hurt. But when the sun rose on the destruction, Benkei was gone. He had gone home to Kyoto. Now, he didn't start off trying to get 1,000 swords from 1,000 defeated samurai. He was in search of a master. He wasn't a noble. He found being a merchant or a tradesman boring. But he loved his aunt and uncle. He knew about his mother and his father and how his aunt had saved him. He didn't want to disappoint her, so he would only return to them when he had a path forward. And finding a master and pledging loyalty, well, that was what you did. But Benkei would never be a retainer for a man he didn't respect. So, each night, he would wait at the Gojo Bridge. We've touched on this here and there, but I've read a few books on how samurai wanted to see themselves at this time, and they were, to put it lightly, very big on honor. If someone even thought they were being insulted, literal fight to the death. I posted a link to one of the sources on this. Anyway, that's how Benke managed to get so many samurai to answer his challenge. An unarmed ruffian calling out insults on the bridge? They would teach him a thing or two. That is, until he got their swords. Some stories say 99, some stories say 999. Regardless, it's a lot of swords. He didn't kill those who surrendered or ran, but everyone fell to him. He decided 100 or 1,000 would be his final blade. This obviously wasn't working, but he wanted to round it out and find a special one. And that's how his shadow fell over a young man about the same age as him, a young man also without a father, who was struggling to find his own place in the world. That was how he met Yoshitsune. Yoshitsune looked up. Yeah, okay. Benkei's smile faded a bit. Oh, yeah, okay, what? It wasn't like he asked if he wanted to go for pizza or see a movie. This was a fight. To the death, probably. For that sword. Yoshitsune nodded again, and he said, yeah. Not here, though. He glanced off in the distance. Gojo Bridge? Nightfall? The 15th day of August the two teenagers stood on either side of the bridge. It was basically abandoned now. Samurai avoided it because they didn't want to be shamed and stripped of their swords. The normal people avoided it because a demon, an oni, apparently haunted it. It was just the two of them. Can we start this? I'd like to beat you and get back. I still have chores at the temple. Yoshitsune called out. Benke squinted. Was that... It was... Yoshitsune's wooden sword tucked into his belt. The golden one was on his other side. Benkei glowered. Ugh, the arrogance. Benkei had taken using a halberd, basically a big blade at the end of a stick. It wasn't that he couldn't beat a samurai unarmed, but it only prolonged the inevitable. A halberd moved things along nicely, especially in the early days, when there was a line of people to challenge him. Yeah, we can start the fight, Benkei hefted his weapon, looking back, and the other side of the bridge was empty. What the? Did he run? He did not. Benkei learned this when the wooden sword smacked his skull, and Yoshitsune had moved fast, too fast, closing the gap in silence and getting inside Benkei's defenses before the deeming youth even truly knew the fight began. Yoshitsune kicked off Benkei's chest and flipped back, and as blood trickled down Benkei's forehead, Benkei smiled. Finally, this was going to be fun. It wasn't, at least not for Benkei. The man swung with his heavy halberd, but could never really connect. Yoshitsune read his moves and hit him at the openings. There was never one knockout hit, but each one chipped away a bit at Benkei. The hits, combined with the constant swinging of the halberd at nothing, started to wear on him. Soon, blood and sweat stinging Benkei's eyes, Yoshitsune made his move. Several hits to Benkei's head in quick succession, and a kick on his wrist, and Benkei was down. Yoshitsune drew his sword, his golden one, for the first time that fight, and put it to Benkei's neck. Who are you? Benkei was in awe of the young man, the only person to have beaten him. Benkei yielded and scrambled to his knees, bowing. I am the youngest son of Minamoto Yoshitomo. My name is Yoshitsune. Benkei bowed low. I have been looking all over this land for a man stronger than myself, to whom I could look up to as a master. You are that man. Please, accept me into your service. Benkei didn't look up. No, Yoshitsune said sheathing his sword. Benkei, wait, what? Yoshitsune didn't answer. He only continued walking, taking out his flute and beginning to play in the moonlight. He had chores to get back to at the temple. Depending on the legend, it took one more fight between the pair for Yoshitsune to finally accept Benkei as his retainer. Maybe because he saw Benkei as an asset to his eventual goal of taking back his family's honor with his brother. Also mainly because he realized Benkei would just keep at it until Yoshitsune killed him, which Yoshitsune really did not want to do. Benkei had attacked Yoshitsune unprovoked in Kyoto, with the crowd fleeing to a safe distance to watch the duel and Benkei knew Yoshitsune would dodge and try to wear him out, but Yoshitsune altered his tactics. Benkei dropped to his knees more in awe of the little guy than ever. There was something uh, supernatural about Yoshitsune. He had pledged himself, and this time, Yoshitsune had accepted. Quick note, the second duel apparently happened at Kiyomizu Temple, and there are supposedly iron clogs still there to this day the ones that Benke wore. Anyway, like Benke had been an exceptional fighter and student, he was the perfect retainer, a samurai, for Yoshitsune. And, unlike the monks at the temple where he had learned, or any of his teachers, he saw Yoshitsune as worthy of his respect. He slept in a nearby room at the temple, where Yoshitsune lived, always prepared to kill for, and die for, his new master. Word traveled. Yoshitsune, of the Minamoto clan, was taking on retainers of his own. Recruiting. The exploits of his older brother were on the lips of everyone that he, too, was raising an army and confronting the Taita clan. Now, Yoshitsune had recruited the unbeatable wild man who destroyed one school with a tree and burned down the other after throwing the class bully on the roof. But you, you burned down a temple? Yoshitsune looked over from the messenger. Benke betrayed no emotion. He didn't respect them. Yoshitsune could only shrug. Oh, uh, fair enough. Yoshitsune hugged his mother. He told her he would be going east. He had sent Benke to establish contact with another clan, who would take him in and protect him. But she needed to find a safe place. If he stayed away from her, she would be safe. They embraced. They always knew that this day would come. And it did. But by the time the Taita assassins arrived... Benkei and Yoshitsune were in the wind. It had been a long campaign, but they were nearly there. Yoritomo, Yoshitsune's elder half brother, had been working tirelessly for years. He was more his father's son than anyone had anticipated. The factions he couldn't reunite under the Minamoto banner, he beheaded and whoever remained joined up. They pushed the Taita clan to the sea, but now, Yorimoto was about to die. They were overwhelmed. He and his samurai and the Taita clan were closing in. Yorimoto had taken an arrow to the armor and fell from his horse, landing hard on his shoulder. He struggled to his feet and the Taita general raised his sword, ready to end the war for good. He raised his sword, but it was his head that fell. A horn sounded, and samurai, also wearing colors of the Minamoto, flooded onto the battlefield. The body of the Taita general thudded to his knees, and the form of an even larger, more imposing man took his place. His name is Benkei. Yurimoto heard a familiar voice yell over the screams of the retreating Taira. Benkei clipped his halberd on his back. Yorimoto didn't know what he was more surprised by, his miraculous salvation, or the fact that it was his brother who saved him. As it turned out, Yoshitsune had been busy. After he disappeared into double secret exile, he had been gathering warriors of his own. The size of his band nearly matched his brother's. He bowed before his brother and presented the golden sword, but Yorimoto refused it. He wouldn't refuse, however, the forces that Yoshitsune offered. Yoshitsune rose and looked his brother in the eyes. It was happening, wasn't it? Just like they hoped for when they were young, Yorimoto smiled. It was. The next several months were grueling, but it was everything Yoshitsune could have hoped for. He and his brother together were unstoppable. Then, one day, the time came. It was Yoshitsune led the final assault. We talked about this story briefly in a recent Creature of the Week, but the Taita, also called the Hike, chose to jump from their ships and drown both themselves and the young imperial claimant. Yoshitsune and Bankei dove into the water themselves to pull Munimori, the leader of the Taita clan, from the water so he could face justice for the murder of Yoshitsune's father. Yoshitsune rendezvoused with Yorimoto at Kamikura and, well, he tried to, he had sent word ahead that the war was over. The Taita clan had been destroyed, drowned in the bay. Yoshitsune dragged the leader back. They had done it. They would never need to fear again. Those were the words the messenger said to Yorimoto, the brother. Yoshitsune never got to speak with him. They approached the walls with the gates closed. Archers lined. The city was preparing for a siege, a siege in peacetime. Kajiwara, Yorimoto's top general, yelled out for Yoshitsune to stay where he was. (laughs) Yoshitsune laughed. Kajiwara, the man, was a general not out of skill, but from his ability to weasel out of any situation or spin it to make himself look like the victor. Yoshitsune instantly saw him for what he was, but Yorimoto wouldn't hear it. Kajiwara was his top man. Apparently, Kajiwara was the first person to take Yorimoto's side and he had saved his life early on, apparently. Though Yoshitsune had no doubt even that was an elaboration played up for Kajiwara's benefit. Yoshitsune started walking forward, and Kajiwara yelled out, A hundred archers knocked a hundred arrows, and Yoshitsune stopped. Yoshitsune's warriors were just as loyal and began readying their own weapons. Yoshitsune held up a hand. He didn't know what Kajiwara was playing at, but they didn't need more bloodshed. They were all allies. He needed to speak with his brother. Kajiwara refused, though. The prisoner. And then Yoshitsune would leave. I can get him, Benke whispered. Don't. Ten seconds, I can clear that distance and his head's on the ground. Benkei never cared too much for math, except when figuring out how best to kill someone. Yeah, and eleven seconds and twenty arrows later, and you'll be dead then our men will lose their own. Then we have a civil war on our hands, if we survive. I've been shot before, Benke crossed his arms. Not by a hundred archers. Benke, the deeming youth, rolled his eyes. Well, first time for everything. So, Yoshitsune capitulated. He had fought beside many of the people, now staring down their arrows at him. He didn't want any of them to die, and certainly didn't want to be the reason for it he and Benke handed over the title leader and left for the next city. But they found that one closed. And the next one after that, on Yorimoto's orders, apparently. But Yoshitsune knew they had to be Kajiwaras. Kajiwara might have power as the advisor to the most powerful warlord and the most powerful clan in Japan, but he wasn't the emperor. And when word reached Shirikawa the cloistered ruler for whom they had ostensibly done all of this, that Yoshitsune had defeated the rival claimant and his clan, the emperor rewarded Yoshitsune with a governorship. So Yoshitsune returned to Kyoto, the seat of power, and soon Benkei and Yoshitsune were home. They fortified themselves in a manor near the place where he had spent time as a boy. Benkei reunited with his aunt and uncle, and Yoshitsune brought his mother. They were safe and Yoshitsune needed to work out how he could get word to his brother. But for a time, they could relax. And it was at this time, too, that Yoshitsune fell in love. Her name was Shizuka. Yoshitsune had known of her when he was young, and when he watched her dancing one day as part of a holy ritual for rain, the general that had earned the respect of some of the deadliest warriors in Japan couldn't move. Benkei introduced them. So, they were happy. It was like a storm had broken and the sun was out. After a childhood spent in anxiety and fear and anger, Yoshitsune could finally laugh. We'll see if the good times last, with Yoshitsune having his brother's evil advisor wanting his head, Spoiler alert, they will not, but that will, once again, be right after this. Yoshitsune was back on the battlefield. He was watching men die, men whose only crime was loyalty to the person above them, who, if not for the lottery of birth, might have been in his place, bringing down the sword instead of falling to it. The armor clanged as the man collapsed on the beach. Couldn't have been older than 19, younger than Yoshitsune. Yoshitsune looked out, watching the leaders jump from their boats. The boy, the emperor, had some battle gone a different way, clinging to the wood before being pulled under. Yoshitsune ran to the water, cutting his own armor away. As he ran more armor clanged. Then more, Yoshitsune slowed. A woman screamed, Wake up. Yoshitsune gasped, and he was back in Kyoto, in his home with his wife. In the darkness, Shizuka was standing over him, beating his armor in his ear. It was a lot to take in at once, but he heard only one word clearly. Assassins. It was a traveling priest that had taken up residence in the neighborhood. Yoshitsune and Benkei knew about him the moment he arrived, thanks to their connections. The other priests said that something was wrong about this bunch. And even though Benkei and Yoshitsune interrogated them, their story was tight. They couldn't do anything other than return home, tell the guard to be on the lookout, and have dinner. But dinner turned into drinks, and drinks to laughter. The guards cycled through the party, and around 1 a.m., Yoshitsune turned in. That was when the priests attacked. Benkei disarmed a lot of them, disarmed, Wookiee style, for threatening his master, and Yoshitsune pulled the sword he kept near his bed, taking out the two that had managed to actually enter his room. He and Benke chased the leader into the forest, outside of Kyoto. He chose to die rather than beg a choice Yoshitsune could respect. But before he did, Yoshitsune confirmed that it was Kajiwara, his brother's general, that gave the order. The assassin shook his head. No, it was Yoritomo, Yoshitsune's brother. He charged. Yoshitsune cut him down in an instant, and he and Benkei dragged the body back. In all, five assassins had attacked the party of half-inebriated, half-sleeping samurai and only managed to kill one of them and two servants before the alarm was raised. But it was three too many. They had to leave again. The bay ahead of them churned. Yoshitsune was going to speak with his brother. They basically had to restrain Shizuka. Yoshitsune's wife, to keep her from coming with them. The group was Yoshitsune's closest and best, about a dozen samurai, and of course, Benkei. When he embraced his wife, she told him to come back. She was with child. He promised her he would. His plan was to meet with a lord who was still on speaking terms with his brother, who could negotiate a talk. That route, though, took them back across the bay the bay where it all ended, where Yoshitsune won the war and became hero of his clan, but enemy of his brother. He still had dreams, nightmares, where he swam for the leader, for everyone that was out of reach, sinking down, writhing in the deep, their lives leaving them. For some reason, for him, it wasn't surprising that the weather began to match his mood. As soon as Yoshitsune and his troops set foot aboard the ferry, the storm started. They urged the ferryman onward, but by the time they made it out to the middle of the bay, the water was turbulent. Then, the bodies, the ones that Yoshitsune had seen descend, returned. The ferry stopped. Lightning struck, and hundreds of warriors stood in front of them, on the water. They were all in the state they had been in when they died. Some were missing arms or legs. Others, who had survived to the end, had simply drowned. All of them looked on Yoshitsune with hatred. Long have we waited here for you, Yoshitsune. You ruthlessly destroyed us. Now we will slay you, the leader hissed. The water became even more agitated. Yoshitsune put his hand on his sword. His eyes narrowed. There was nothing he could do now except to confront. Fight the ghosts of his past. Have you forgotten who I am? Have you forgotten how I drove you before me as dust in the wind when you were alive? And yet, now you want to fight me? Like that? So be- Yoshitsune felt a hand on his sword arm. It was Benke. He was shaking his head. Yoshitsune didn't understand. These were insolent ghosts standing in his way. Benkei said, yes. Ghosts. People only become ghosts. They only linger when they have unfinished business, when they die obsessed with something they still need to do. Benkei took a deep breath. Their rage, it kept them from moving on. Yoshitsune's brother's rage and obsession kept Yoshitsune on the run, and Yorimoto trapped in anxiety, seeing enemies everywhere. Yoshitsune shouldn't yield to it, too, or he would be just as lost. Sail on, Benke commanded the ferryman. They're only ghosts. They only have the power we give them. The ferryman was scared of ghosts, yes, but not as scared as he was of disobeying Benke. He nodded and raised the sail. Benke sat at the front of the boat. He began to pray. He recited the sutras. He prayed for peace, even for those who had once been his enemies and the storm ceased. The sky cleared, revealing the soft glow of the moon and countless stars. The ghosts, the ghosts looked at Yoshitsune, their eyes no longer full of hatred, but wisdom, understanding that life, death, existence was more than our petty motivations and grievances. Exhaled, and they were no more. Dissipating on the wind like dust. Yoshitsune, Benkei, and the others sailed on through a calm bay, unimpeded. How did he find us? Yoshitsune turned to Benkei. Benkei said it was the gatehouse a few days back. Yoshitsune nodded, well, if it wasn't for Benke, they would have been stopped and executed there. At the gatehouse, the last stop before the long march to see Yoshitsune's ally, the soldiers were on the lookout for Yoshitsune. So Benke, trained priest that he was, had the group toss their weapons over the wall and pretend to be a group of traveling priests. It worked, until one of the guards realized Yoshitsune matched the description of the general's brother. They did allow Yoshitsune and Benkei to pass, but only when Benkei beat Yoshitsune for slouching and looking suspicious. This was the third time that this acolyte had caused their delay because he looked like the rebel leader. Benkei had to keep himself from throwing up as he praised Yoritomo, and the guards said that there was no way Yoshitsune would allow himself to be beaten and shamed like that. They let the group pass, but word made it to Yoritomo and he cursed the guards. That was them. So, he mobilized thousands. And now, the silhouettes of those thousands were cresting the mountain behind Yoshitsune and Benkei. Yoshitsune had just crossed the river. The bridge was the only one around for kilometers. We could destroy it, Benkei said. It would slow Yoritomo. Might give him enough time to escape. Yoshitsune shook his head. The people of this region depended on the bridge. It wasn't right to draw them into the squabble. Squabble, Benkei said. The army would be there in an hour, tops. Scouts and vanguard even sooner. Yoshitsune took a deep breath. He knew. It was time. Benkei said that that didn't have to be true. Yoshitsune could fight. He could... Could be like those ghosts back there in the bay. Yoshitsune rejoined. Benkei stopped talking. He. He understood. He looked back to the army. The first riders were already descending the mountain. It wouldn't be long. Go, Benkei said. Yoshitsune shook his head. What? Benkei pointed to the army. He was buying Yoshitsune time. He would hold the bridge. Yoshitsune understood. He clasped Benkei on the shoulder. Benkei had been a wonderful, a perfect retainer, but he was an even better friend. Benkei replied that there was no one he would rather have served than Yoshitsune. Yoshitsune wasn't just a good master, he was a good man. With that, Yoshitsune turned and rode off. Benkei gripped his halberd, standing on the edge of the bridge, and waited. army slowed, Kajiwara, Yoritomo's chief advisor, rode out to the center of the bridge. Benkei had thought about what he would say. Would it be threats? Would it be a searing indictment of how Kajiwara had turned Yorimoto against his own brother, killing people so he himself could be safe? Then Benkei decided that he didn't really care. He had already heard enough of what Kajiwara had to say, and if he could have his way, Kajiwara would never say anything ever again. So, Benkei had his way. He closed the gap between him and Kajiwara faster than anyone could have imagined, and before Kajiwara could so much as turn his horse, his head bounced into the river. Benkei smacked the horse, spurring it on back toward its own side, as he heard the shout go up from Yorimoto. Hundreds of bowstrings loosened their arrows, and a shadow, fell on Benkei. He gripped his halberd, looked forward, and breathed. Yorimoto walked past Benkei. It took three volleys of arrows to ensure that he was actually dead. The man had died on his feet, eyes open and looking forward. No one would attack. They all thought he was just waiting for them to advance, that he was some demon or god. Yorimoto rode forward to confirm that he was dead. He announced that this man was not to be looted or defaced. He died bravely and he would be cremated with honor. Yorimoto found the other samurai stationed around a farmhouse. He called out for them to surrender and they attacked in unison. They lasted longer than anyone thought they would, but it was a thousand versus a handful. Yorimoto walked past their corpses. He slid the door of the farmhouse open, and it was quiet and dark, save for the glowing lantern up on the second floor. Yorimoto considered drawing a sword, but breathed. Yoshitsune, the only response was a thud on the wood. Yorimoto cocked his head and climbed the ladder. There, on the second floor, the shadow of his brother's body danced in the lantern light, but the body itself was still. Seppuku, Yorimoto's shoulders slumped. No, his brother had driven his dagger into his own stomach. It was to die with honor rather than to fall in the hands of his enemy. His enemy, his own brother. Yorimoto took Yoshitsune into his arms He had ordered his retainers to stay outside. He could take this moment. He said he was sorry. He was scared. He listened to the wrong people. He believed lies, that his brother was coming for him, that he was more popular, that he would never be safe as long as Yoshitsune, the victor, lived. Yorimoto was beside himself with grief. He nearly cut himself on the dagger still sticking out of his brother's stomach and grimaced as he... Pulled it free. He rested it in the darkness by their side. And his hand grazed something else. Something cold. He blinked. And a tear ran down his face. He picked up the scabbard. And the sword. The sword Yoshitsune had won. On their last day together. As children. He pulled it into the flickering light. It was... It was their father's golden sword. It had a note attached to it. It read, For my brother, you win. Yorimoto would go on to become the first shogun of Japan. Nominally appointed by the emperor, the shogun was the commander-in-chief over the samurai, and as such actually held the power. He took power in 1192. The shogunate would continue on in some form until the Meiji Restoration in the 1800s. But as for Yorimoto, well, he too had had a life. He had had wives and children up to that point, all of whom were killed with him in a bloody coup, not seven years after he took power. This was originally supposed to be a story just about Benkei, but Yoshitsune's story is so inextricably woven into this that it just ended up as both. Some of these were historical events. Yoritomo took power as, debatably, the first shogun in 1192, and Yoshitsune and Benkei were historical figures as well. One notable place the story diverged was that a legendary take said that Yoritomo and Yoshitsune went into exile together at first. I like that, and... I thought that it could give the end a little bit of an extra punch, so I went with that. Some places indicate that they didn't meet until their first battle together. Next week, we're back in Greek myth with the long-promised Aphrodite episode. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site and on Apple Podcasts. And for less than the price of a phone umbrella, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that, like the phone umbrella, won't actually keep sun and rain off your phone. But our episodes are not a headless cat, like the phone umbrella is for some reason. So I guess we have that going for us. Check out MythPodcast.com membership or Myths and Legends Plus and Apple Podcasts for more info. The creatures this week are the Keltimus and the Kaznaperi. From the Mari people. The Kaznaperi is known as the treasure devil. And it loves its treasure. More specifically, it loves... Cooking its treasure? I posted the source of this one. Because apparently the internet archive thinks that its copyright has expired. But yeah, every year between Pentecost, seven days after Easter, and Midsummer's Day, the summer solstice that just passed, keep an eye on those forests. And the actual demons cooking treasure over a blue flame. There's not too much on this little guy, but if you're a fan of listening to this podcast, but not listening to any of the consequences of any of the Creature of the Week segments, just go into the forest, look for an actual demon cooking gold over a blue flame, charge at the demon before that blue flame goes out, and grab that hot metal, and yeah, you just got yourself a handful of melty treasure. Maybe it'll even pay your hospital bill. The other one, the Keltmus, is an evil forest trickster who likes, yeah, to trick people. For instance, one time, he found an elderly man in the bath, made him forget where he was, and he wandered naked and wet off into a snowstorm. Which, at that point, that's not really being a trickster, that's just killing people. If you don't want little monsters surprising you in the bath, which I'll assume you don't, your solution is mirrors. Yeah, apparently, these devils hate the look of themselves. And if they turn a corner and see a mirror, nope, they're out of there. They don't need that stress. Their self-loathing is a little sad, but yeah, I'll use it. They're not just hated by people, though. Apparently, lightning striking, that's just the sky trying to kill the keltmus. And yeah, no matter how you're doing in life, you're doing better than being so destructive and annoying that the sky itself is trying to kill you. So yeah, every time you hear a thunderstorm... solace. That's just the sky. Trying to make sure you don't end up wandering the woods contracting naked pneumonia. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.